This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Silicon Valley is one of the richest and most powerful places on Earth. But it has not had the easiest time of it this year, with tech companies getting hammered with diminishing valuations and layoffs. And at times like this, we at The Beat think that it could be useful to put it all in perspective. So we've invited the famed historian Margaret O'Mara, the author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, to join us and to talk to us about how Silicon Valley came to be and where all the turmoil fits in its long and fascinating history. So if you're like me, someone who gets a bit of culture shock when they're out west and would like to get a quick guide to the place, as well as a better understanding as to what changes are coming to the Valley and what they mean against the larger sweep of financial history, well, this episode is for you. Food is the bat, yeah. Coward, nope. Hustle like equal dollar, yeah. Do we ever play weak? Nope. Finesse like David Lee, yeah. Margaret, thanks so much for joining Fintech Beat. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Before we dive into issues like the economy and the contemporary changes impacting Silicon Valley, you are one of the great historians on Silicon Valley and have written one of the great books on the topic. If you could divide the history of the development of the region into key phases, uh, how would you do it? Um, I mean, when you think about how it all started, how has that history, how has the history of the place changed over time? Yeah. Well, if you go a time travel back 100 years to 1923 and landed in the middle of, say, Sunnyvale or Palo Alto or Cupertino um, or Mountain View, where the big tech campuses are today, you would probably be standing in the middle of a fruit orchard. Uh, there was it was an agricultural valley in California. It was not you know, you probably wouldn't have imagined what was coming. So it's a great example of um, how, uh, you know, how things change. So, uh, you know, the real, the real hinge, the real, the real pivotal decade for the, for the Valley was uh, started, was World War II and the 1940s. It was a pivotal decade for California and the West, right? There was the Pacific Theater brought so many, so much military activity and so many soldiers out west. And then um, the you know, war ends, uh, but then a few years later, the Cold War hardens. And the first, I think, real era of Silicon Valley, which is a long one, to be clear, uh, is that of the Cold War and defense spending. How you replace apricot trees with microchip manufacturers. The Cold War had almost everything to do with it. Defense industry, defense contractors were the biggest employers, the biggest business, and persisted throughout the Cold War. Lockheed, 
headquartered then was just Lockheed, not Lockheed Martin, Martin yet, headquarters in, in Southern California, opened its missiles and space division in Sunnyvale, uh, bulldozed some orchards <laughs> to build this and uh, in 1955. And it was the biggest employer in the Valley through the end of the 80s. In 1990, you had tens of thousands of people still working at Lockheed and at other defense contractors in the Valley. It's this hidden history that isn't, uh, isn't foregrounded. And the reason it's important in generating the tech industry we have today, which is consumer products, enterprise products, is that the what is concentrated, what's happening in the Valley, the type of defense R&D that was happening was not building airplanes like up here in Seattle or, or in LA. Um, it was building microelectronics, very small electronics, transistorized electronics and communication devices. It turns out those things were pretty critical to miniaturizing mainframe computers and to creating ways for computers to talk to one another and for human beings to communicate via digital means. So really the building blocks of that tech revolution start in the 50s and 60s with this intense, def mostly defense-oriented work. It's also hardware. That's what they're they're building things. And, and I think that yeah, the best, another way to think about kind of the next phase of the Valley is its commercial hardware phase where microchips and semiconductors are, are what's going on. Um, it's not a software uh, place. The software isn't a, really a standalone in, industry until Bill Gates and Microsoft show up in the late seventies and early eighties and say, you could actually make money doing this one thing. Uh, so, you know, Silicon Valley builds stuff. It's a manufacturing district in the 70s and into the 80s. It has assembly lines. Now, those that manufacturing gradually goes other places in the U.S. then goes overseas. Very familiar manufacturing story. And then its software era really only starts growing in the 80s, 90s. But quite frankly, Microsoft is the biggest game in town. And so a lot of the smaller software companies eventually <laughs> um, get swallowed up <laughs> into Microsoft. Uh, and But really with the 1990s dot-com boom, you switch to internet platforms and, and, and internet software. And that from the 90s forward is what the Valley is all about. It's no longer a manufacturing district. Of course, there are companies that make hardware, uh, Apple, for example, it, but it makes those things elsewhere, <laughs> mostly in China. So, you know, it's, it's very distinct. Um, and then I'll end our little tour through time uh, by putting a note. And this is something that I, I think I've only fully just grasped the magnitude of when I was writing the last section of my book, uh, which uh, my editor um, wisely advised me to go all the way up to the present, which historians don't really like to do. It makes us very uncomfortable because that's, you know, <laughs> everyone's a little too alive for our liking. Uh, but the last 20 years, the 21st century of tech has, and particularly since the Great Recession, has been this extraordinary scale up of the industry, the growth of these enormous companies and platforms, um, small companies being acquired rather than growing and going public, uh, and, and tech just being everywhere, uh, being so foundational and fundamental to so many other things that make the global economy go and being the central business story. And that's why these layoffs, uh, although tech has, you know, some sort of there's very tech specific reasons for them. 
they are having such a, you know, they're making headlines and possibly, you know, having ripple effects. That was so, so useful and really, really interesting. And of course, it generates lots of questions. Um, I guess first to mind, when you move from the Cold War to hardware and microelectronics to software and, 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 and the internet, uh, there's a lot caught up uh, in that process. Um, but what were the primary catalysts of those transitions? Um, was it an innovation or are there usually macroeconomic drivers? Yeah. Yes, and. Um, yeah, it's a super good question. You know, what is the catalyst? What's the turn? I mean, the turn from being a defense economy primarily to being um, a, a more commercially oriented economy is both uh, externalities and, and, and other technological um, inputs. Um, technologically, it is uh, the development of the integrated circuit at the beginning, which is you know, the microchip, at the beginning of the 1960s, which initially was like most of the stuff created those days in the Valley, uh, esoteric and didn't have, an, and very expensive and didn't have a use case in business, or at least business couldn't see it. Uh, but it had a use case for, drum roll please, the Apollo program. And so NASA uh, picked up a whole bunch of those bad boys from Valley chip manufacturers. And the space program was really kind of got the flywheel going. Um, you know, shooting the moon was, uh, as, as your listeners are familiar, was a very expensive endeavor. And there was a willingness to spend a lot of money on blue sky technology and having very small, fast, uh, portable electronic devices was essential. But that, that you know, big customer, uh, uh, this, these big orders allow the manufacturers of chips to uh, scale up production, scale down the cost and make them something that can actually be a, a commodity um, and something that, that they can manufacture for, for commercial markets and commercialize. So that, so that sort of transition is, is happening. And then the, the sort of external um, impetus is that the end of the 1960s, defense spending gets cut. Uh, well, the moon, the moon shot, we get, we get to the moon. So check that box. And then, you know, the, the, the budgets for NASA kind of um, tamp down accordingly from there. And, uh, and the Pentagon is not able to spend the money it was spending on R&D and on, especially on high tech, the high tech side of what it was doing. So that really um, caused, and then the broader 70s economy just kind of you know, grinds everything down. So in a way, it creates this interesting pause where a lot of there's a lot of iteration and innovation and creation going on in the 70s because the market's pretty cool and people have time to um, sit around on beanbags and think up ideas and, you know, <laughs> and and think really think actively about what the next big thing is going to be. So there's this this space that's created in that. Um, and then, you know, you have these successive, I think, catalysts for for change, in a way, all of these technological generations build on one another. If you have the microchip, you know it gets to a point of power and cost where you can take a, a wooden, build a wooden box around it, and you've made uh, the Apple one. <laughs> you've made the first, or you, you put it on a motherboard, and you you know you artfully design the insides, and then you can you know put something together and have a compu computer. Um, on a chip that you turn into a desktop computer. And then in turn, the PC industry gives uh, way to the more powerful workstation industry. So you have these enterprise, very sort of powerful desktop devices, like Sun Microsystems, that was what they did. And, um, and then those being networked first through um, time sharing networks and kind of old school dial up 
you know, CompuServe and uh, those communication networks then get amped up with the uh, commercialization of the internet, which again is a, pub a public policy process that allows the internet, the existing uh, network that's being used by federal contractors and scientists to be commercialized and you can buy and sell on it. And that happening at the beginning of the 90s creates this entirely new sort of platform change and on and on. When you think about, I guess, really what can be described as, I guess, defense spending winter, and you think about analogies like crypto winter, um, where is Silicon Valley at this historical moment? Uh, I know a lot of people talk about the dot-com bust, but is that the best analogy and, and is that really accurate? Or are there other periods in time that you think are more comparable to where the Valley is right now? Um, how do you view the present through your lens as a historian? Um, well, I think that the dot-com analogy is, is, it works to a point, right? So just um, as now you have macro changes um, the, there was tightening of the, of capital, the interest rates rising, the end of, um, sort of the turn of the millennium, there, um, kind of more of the, the things that were fueling so much, so much demand, the Y2K retrofit, which was like a, you know, the sort of working on making sure all the computers didn't reset to zero to 1900, <laughs> um, that created this huge demand for IT work, uh, that was then over by the nine, you know. January 1st, 2000, and they, they, it, it, it was, so that's, you know, the, there are these other things, but I think, you know, there's also a similar um, froth um, and a kind of the, the company formation and the valuations getting ahead of actually what the use, proven use cases were. In, in, you know, so I think this is where you get a divergence from the kind of the broader tech downturn and the dot-com bust. I actually think the tighter comp is the dot-com bust and the crypto winter, uh, where you had a really rapid run-up and then some pretty spectacular crashes um, and the, the kind of evaporation of value at scale. The, I think a distinction that was really important that even in the wreckage of the dot-com bust, when the NASDAQ is down more than 80%, the, the internet's use case had been proven, um, or a lot of use cases had been were visible. Some of them weren't quite there yet. For example, Pets.com, which is this uh, you know poster child for uh, internet excess, the ultimate dot bomb, right? It had that sock puppet mascot and had a Super Bowl ad, and um, and you know they were selling pet supplies and food on the internet, right? Um, and people were like, that's ridiculous. That was, and it was a completely unsustainable business in 2000, 2001, completely. Uh, that's what Chewy.com does now. That's what Amazon does now with ease and with great profit because the broader infrastructure is there, um, physical, financial, consumer distribution, everything is there for it. So you know, I think that's an important distinction too. Like crypto kind of has fallen into its winter and there's still a lot of questions about, okay, so what are the use cases proven and prospective? And they're a little murkier, right? Um, and, you know, part of it's really challenging because the internet was this platform shift at a scale that I, it, it's hard to match. 
<laughs> um, you know, it really is hard for, you know, even, you know, AI and the kind of, you know, everyone's looking for the next big thing, right? Chat, GPT, et cetera, et cetera. That's, you know, a, that's, that's a something and there's use cases for it, but it's, you know, the internet, commercial internet was, let's put the economy online. Like it was a fundamental far-reaching, profound change where anyone doing business at any scale had to have to be part of that network, which we don't, you know, we don't have that uh, kind of at the same scale. One of the things I was struck by before we made that transition uh, to Silicon Valley and its identity was your observation that companies after a while stopped going public and instead started acquiring companies. And I think that's really Interesting when you think about the contemporary moment and questions coming from Washington, D.C., from the standpoint of antitrust law and the concentration of economic power. Uh, but I was a bit more curious about whether or not that impacted the way in which companies were being started up in the first place and who was starting them up and, and, and how businesses were being run or even how the town began to see itself when companies weren't going to faraway places and, and listing on the uh, other uh, side of the country, but maybe sticking around to see whom they should acquire or even get to know. Um, can you give us some sense as to how that started to impact the culture of Silicon Valley and, and again, ultimately its sense of self and the culture of the place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great question because you're right. It did. I mean, does it change the calculus of startups? I mean, there's, you know, incredible excitement about starting up and veneration of startup founders. I mean, there's always been to a certain degree of founder culture in the Valley and a engineer driven culture, but really in this century, it is kind of scaled up to, um, to be so central and kind of the, the and, and to, in a way the talent to be a an engineer with you know the really robust um, set of skills and you know the full stack uh, is to be incredibly in demand and to be very well compensated and yeah so I mean certainly venture capitalists are funding companies with an eye to exits that could be acquisition. And more rarely were the IPO. The IPO kind of the the dimming of the appeal of the IPO um, was also a consequence of the early 2000s. Not necessarily the dot com bust alone, but particularly Enron and the collapse of Enron, and then the financial regulations that came in um, after that, and then also after the financial crisis, where there's a real tightening of some of the rules. So, long story short going public, which is never a smooth and easy, you know, path anyway, um, is something that is, uh, you know, got, it has a less appeal. Um, it becomes more unwieldy. Uh, it is, you know, not certainly for a few years, you know, before you have the most recent stock market run up, it was um, kind of unclear, um, always, you know, it kind of depended on the, the quarter. Um, but I think another really important thing that's that's facilitating this was the really long runway that companies were able to stay private because there were so much capital, so much cash sloshing around the financial system, looking for a home and finding that home in 
venture tech venture capital. And so these VCs are managing and continue to manage these enormous funds uh, that consist of other people's money, not just the usual other people that have been investing in tech, but all these new entities, sovereign wealth funds, um, you know, global wealth. And this is also a function of, again, policy, right? Our decade-long party of quantitative easing and the central banks kind of making the money go. And that was, you know, those things were all kind of coming together and allowing companies to just keep on go, 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 fueled by venture money without a turn of profit. Um, That the IPO was not the goal or not the mark of now you've made it, you've made your Wall Street debut. Not that that went away. People love ringing the bell, opening bell, right? But that didn't have the kind of, it wasn't this rite of passage that it was in the 80s and 90s. And because there are other ways to go I, to your sort of the last part of the question, thinking about what the implications are of on the culture and on on innovation or on, you know, what's new. I, I think the acquisition of smaller companies or teams, a lot of it was aqua hires, like you're hiring these engineers as a, as a package um, and going inside to a big company like Google or Facebook was, um, you know, then that becomes a, you know, a closed shop, so to speak. Um, it is something that's now proprietary to the large company. It's allowed those companies to become as powerful as they have been and, and make their products as powerful as they have been. But also it is not, um, uh, you know, it, it, it isn't necessarily that the history shows <laughs> that that type of in-house uh, research or in-house production R&D side is not necessarily the way that new ideas really get seeded or maybe it's less about invention and it's more about iteration. It's, you know, you might be able to invent something cool, but being able to build on that to make a marketable product and to scale and to create a market uh, and create a whole class of people and companies that are really want to buy something they didn't realize they needed a few years before, that's usually happens out of outside that silo. So already you're starting moving us into this conversation on culture, the exoneration of the founder, this idea that uh, being employed by certain kinds of companies was a reputational badge of honor, a status symbol even. And I'm hearing from you that at this point in time, Silicon Valley is developing its own way of doing things and its own identity, right, as as a community and specifically as a technology community. Are there any other features of that community that you find to be particularly interesting, especially when you compare it to the rest of the United States and, for that matter, the rest of the world? Yeah, it is a very distinctive community. It is born out of very distinctive circumstances, uh, a world historical moment that will not be reproduced. Um, I joke that I have sacrificed millions of dollars in consulting fees by telling people around the world you can't build another Silicon Valley because it's the product of you know the Eisenhower era United States um, for all the all these reasons. Um, but here's something that. Um, but I actually I think there are many ways to build another Silicon Valley and quite frankly build it better because one of the great weaknesses of Silicon Valley, particularly now that it is so, and I'm saying I'm using this as the shorthand for the American industry, mostly based on the West Coast, including my town of Seattle. Um, that uh, it is now that it is, you know, people around the world are using its products, that it has such political influence, and economic influence, 
the fact that it is that these are products created by such a narrow and homogenous band of people is problematic. It's problematic from a business perspective. It's problematic from a social perspective, not least because this has been this enormous wealth creator and it has replicated kind of patterns of privilege and wealth. And this is absolutely critical to, to, to the history of Silicon Valley is how you understand this. And the thing that's really the toughest part of it is part of the thing that is the Silicon Valley go juice is exactly the thing that makes it so homogenous and so it's like it's persistent lack of diversity. It's the network. It's the multi-generational network of people over time. It's not just, it's not, I talked about generations of technology, right? The microchip and then the personal computer. There are people who are making these things. And the way that the Valley model has worked since the 1950s is the venture capitalists are by and large, former operators. So they're coming from the industry, or if they're not, they come from a business program like Harvard Business School, which by the way, was entirely male and I think almost entirely white for a very, very long time. Um, they are the ones making the decisions about who the winners of the next generation are gonna be. And what they do, and this is part of the magic. They, you know, a venture capitalist in kind of the classic sense, Sand Hill Road, Silicon Valley venture capitalist. It's not just money they're giving. It's not just I'm giving you a check. They're giving you mentorship. They're telling you how to run a company, what your goals should be, what a market looks like. They are, I mean, these by and large, these are small firms started by very young men with mm, zero or minimal management experience. And this goes all the way back to the 60s. Um, these, these are not people who are seasoned <laughs> CEOs by and large. Uh, and so that money and mentorship model Really, you know, you have these very personal connections of kind of going from generation to generation, and it, and it works. It, you know, this is this is important. I mean, look, business and politics, all these things, networks, you know, who you know, and how you know, connections. That's how we all make our way through the world, right? Um, I think where this gets really problematic is not simply because Silicon Valley or the tech industry, American tech industry, is so big. Um, but it is, it believes, firmly believes, the people in sort of the, the, the pinnacle of it who've done so well, really truly believe it's a meritocracy. They really believe that they're non-discriminatory. They're, you know, a lot of them are, you know, liberal in their politics. If they're not liberal, they're libertarian. So generally kind of like see themselves kind of, we don't care about this stuff. Um, but they are, you know, and if you dial back to the very beginning of the Valley, these early Cold War defense years, right, the who were the first people working out there who, you know, obviously, you need to import labor, um, you know, engineers, they weren't here, they weren't there in the orchards in the beginning. And, and the thing that's really remarkable about it, that it actually was this incredible escalator of upward mobility for, um, to be clear, they were all white men. But these were men who did not were not born with money, were not born with connections, did not go to Ivy League schools. They were mostly scholarship kids from small towns who were good enough at engineering. They got a scholarship to MIT or to Rice or got Rice at that time was free tuition. Um, they came out to California because, uh, you know, they didn't have other options. They didn't really have the connections to get them a job at, you know, some big company back east. So that, I think that foundational kind of, yes, indeed, it was a place of incredible opportunity. And it's a proof point of if you actually give people who aren't the usual suspects opportunities to do cool stuff, 
they do amazing stuff. So that, you know, but the really having a very honest reckoning with that. And, you know, to be clear that the spaces that tech grew were also suburban, white, actively removing people of color from those spaces. Um, the, the Seattle East Side suburbs where Microsoft is headquartered, where, you know, Seattle was an overwhelmingly white metro, continues to be to a lesser degree. But if you look at, the, you know, Seattle's east side in the 1960s, the, uh, well, most of Seattle, quite frankly, it, you know, the Asian American, Native American, African American populations were all concentrated in one part of the city. It's a story, you know, across the nation. But, you know, we have to reckon with that and recognize that history and understand that that's, you know, it isn't just a pipeline problem. It isn't just a, oh, there's some tech bros who, you know, aren't enlightened. It's kind of baked into the system in a pretty fundamental way. So here you're really telling us this very broad narrative of Silicon Valley. Uh, so, you know, again, moving forward, you've, you've sort of uh, told us this story of change uh, in the Valley, changing businesses and changing business models. And all the while, change that was not entirely disruptive, but very often iterative in, in many ways with uh, past incarnations. Uh, now, sort of looking forward, a lot of the macroeconomics have changed, especially when it comes uh, to cheap money. Uh, we're seeing changes in U.S. demographics as well through immigration and a broader browning of the United States. And when, when you look at the place and innovation, when you put it all together, what do you see as the future of the place? Uh, you're a historian, but you're probably in a better place than anyone else to take a look and to think about what it will look like, um, what are your hunches? Or, or really, what are you looking for when you think about these changes and what they mean for Silicon Valley and, and the broader economy? Yeah. Yeah, it's hunches and, you know, predictions are are dangerous. You know, if we were predicting in 1923 where, where tech would grow, it wouldn't be there. If we were predicting in 1953... Uh, where tech would grow, I think, you know, we would have been putting money on the East Coast for, for sure, because that was where IBM was, that was where all the, everything was happening there. Um, uh, so with that being said, I think, you know, there are these broader, you know, we can, we can learn from history and think about what might Silicon Valley become. Um, every single industrial district and every single innovation capital eventually becomes a place of dinosaur companies. Sorry, guys. Uh, Detroit was the most innovative place in America in the 19-teens. Um, Detroit is still, there's still a lot of innovation going on in Detroit. But when you think of the most innovative place in America and a place that is to be celebrated, emulated, I want to, you know, do exactly what they did. There's, you know, I don't know if Detroit would be the first, you know, first that would come to mind. Um, and the auto industry in particular kind of has had a, <laughs> had a rough few decades. Um, so there's, you know, just so recognizing that there's a there's a life cycle. Um, you know, Manchester, UK was, you know, innovation capital of the 1850s <laughs> or the first half of the 19th century. Like it, things things change, technologies change, times change. But I think that you sort of think about thinking about immigration. It's a great example. And kind of going back to my earlier comment about the homogeneity of Silicon Valley. The one exception has been um, East Asian and South Asian men, <laughs> um, but uh, but East Asian and South Asian immigrants um, and their children um, who make up a huge, I mean, foreign-born workers make up a huge portion of the tech workforce. 
but not only as the tech, you know, the engineers making things go, but also as founders of companies um, and on and on. And that real wave of immigration, it starts then sort of to be seen at scale as sort of the 70s, 80s. Um, and that too has its own networks, right? These networks of, of migrants, of immigrants who are helping one another out. And so, I mean, it's a proof point that you actually can um, introduce uh, new faces, new colors, <laughs> um, diversity of a kind into the system. That's totally possible. Um, and that um, there, you know, you just need to kind of think think more broadly about what, what the possibilities are. And again, just be, uh, you know, be honest about what's going on rather than be like, la, 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 we're just funding the best people. Um, what are, you know, what's going to go, where is it going to go? I mean, we've gone from hardware to software. In some ways, hardware is coming back because we have, you know, not least because of the federal investments in um, the CHIPS Act and semiconductors, and, but also in green tech with the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, a whole bunch of money is going to come into the system. Um, so that also points to where Silicon Valley going to be. Um, it's going to be everywhere. Like Silicon Valley already is kind of everywhere. But right now we have tech that's incredibly geographically concentrated. Again, I think problematic from an from economic point of view and a political point of view. Um, uh, it, it, you know where you have so much wealth clustered on the coasts and so so little, um, uh, you know, so imbalanced. So that's what some of the you know new federal funding is trying to actively rectify that imbalance. It won't do it alone. But I, I'm going to be watching kind of both throughout the United States and globally, kind of where other tech clusters or high-tech oriented, you know, innovation districts are growing, who's who's there, what those networks are, and how those are reaching kind of to a, getting to a certain point where um, Silicon Valley will no longer be just a place in California. It'll be everything. Margaret, thanks so much for joining us. This was so interesting and I learned a lot. Uh, we really look forward to having you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really fun. I've got to admit that as a kid from Northwest Arkansas, Silicon Valley often strikes me to be as foreign a place as capitals on the other side of the globe. But listening to Margaret, it does remind me that in some ways we're not all that different and tied to the great trends facing the nation and the world. After all, my hometown, like Silicon Valley, has been transformed through immigration, technology, and globalization. And with it, it has seen the creation and accumulation of wealth that we as a human species have rarely encountered. Now, as the hot air comes out of the economy, the critical question will be not whether or not tech survives or its home base. It's going to be whether it adapts to new social and economic realities and whether that spirit of innovation that has driven research and technology can transform a region that has become the home of global incumbents as much as it has a launch pad for startups. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. -M -M -E We'd love to hear from you.